I think the mindsets of all the leaders needs to evolve too, because I think at some point in time, nobody wants to talk about it, but there are a lot of functions that can be outsourced. They just really can be because at the end, you got to drive down costs because consumers have a lot of access to information. Today. And that doesn't mean that, you know, people always are fearful, like jobs are going to get eliminated. Look, there's more people driving people around today with Uber than when it was just taxi cabs. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at HW Media. And today I'm joined by Eddie Perez, the CEO and president at Equity Prime Mortgage, aka EPM. I reached out to Eddie during the week of NBA annual after seeing some of his on-stage involvement as a, uh, a committee member and board member and volunteer with the Mortgage Bankers Association. And I reached out to Eddie to ask him about how leaders can get involved in the NBA and other organizations across the industry and how they can really make an impact on the broader housing economy outside of the walls of their own operations. And I did this under the context of, I personally want to learn about getting more involved in the mortgage and housing industry as a leader, but also to talk about some of the challenges that come with running your own business, running your own team, having KPIs you have to meet in a market like this, being in battlefield mode, but still finding the time and resources to give back to a greater good and build long-term careers in the housing industry. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Equity Prime President and CEO, Eddie Perez. All right. So, so Eddie, as I was getting ready for this interview, I was, uh, I checked out your LinkedIn for a minute and, um, I knew you were the CEO of, uh, EPM, but, uh, chief wrestler of egos. Tell, tell us about <laughs> <laughs> what is the chief wrestler of egos? Uh, what, what was um, the, the kind of the thought and humor behind that one? So I'll give you the context first and kind of, well, first of all, I think every, CEO and president is the chief wrestler of egos. That's your hardest job. Uh, but it goes into, there's a, a gentleman, and, and people can look at him on, on YouTube. His name is Dr. Rick Rigsby. Uh, my favorite quote in life, because it's so true, and he talks about it, you know, lessons learned from a third grade dropout. That was his father. His story's amazing. But he said the greatest line I've ever heard, and it's true. Um, he says, um, God, how does it go exactly? Oh, I got it. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. And I, I can't agree more with that statement. And you also have to understand it because anybody who's ever gotten to a level has an ego and everybody has one good and positive. And it's really understanding that and getting that awareness around it and asking people, um, cause we start every executive meeting. I tell people to hang up their ego every strategic we ever have. The first thing is I line everybody up and I tell people to hang up their ego. And then to even ask people like, hey dude, is this your ego talking? And a lot of people are very vulnerable and admit it. But that's my job because I say, hey guys, I, I think there's a whole lot of ego breath going on right now. Let's let's take a time out. It's okay. I'm not upset. Let's just move it along. But that's where that came from because you never really conquer it. You just wrestle with it and you do what you can to uh, you don't want to stifle it because then you'll stifle candor. 
you just got to understand it and be more aware. Yeah, it seems like the the line between ego and confidence and candor is is a it's a thin it's a thin line. And as a as a leader, as a CEO, as an executive in any capacity, you need to have confidence in the in the path that that you are marching, the path that you are leading your team down, the path that you are you know helps your your clients and partners. But at the same time, have the humility to to understand what you don't know and where the landmines are and when you need to take that ego off. So, like, how is have you figured out any other tactics on like helping your team members, your executive leaders, your origination leaders, like keep their their gusto and their candor and their confidence, but not have it come through as like blind ego? I mean, the key to any of those situations is um, ask questions to understand have just a very genuine third grade level curiosity. But why dad, that whole saying why is a question that, that people aren't aware of. It's an influence question. Um, either you're trying to cast influence or you want to get their information, but it's still about learning to understand and really grasp what's going on. Because a lot of times people really aren't that far off base and you just got to get it there. So just asking a lot of questions just from genuine curiosity will help navigate even the hairiest of situations. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a good kind of lead into this conversation. I, uh, I joked with you on email and I reached out to schedule a podcast is like, Hey, I'm, I'm kind of coming to you uh, with this, this question out of like a little bit of like curiosity that I just want to learn about the ways that executives and leaders in the housing industry can get involved at a national level to, uh, to, to make a difference, affect change, and also grow as leaders. And uh, coming out of NBA Annual uh, two, two weeks ago, uh, it was clear how, how many ways that you have gotten involved at a national level with the Mortgage Bankers Association. So kind of just wanted to dissect your, your involvement from a, a leadership and uh, volunteer and philanthropic capacity and how that's affected you and affected the industry. So, so Eddie, like kind of looking back at your history at the NBA, it seems like you got involved on the, the national board of directors in, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Was that your, was that your first involvement in a, no, in an industry no. organization? Like tell, tell us about kind of your evolution of, of being involved in associations and, and giving back to the, the mortgage world? Sure. So it started in 2012. You know, nobody gets on the board without a while of paying your, I don't want to say paying your dues because it's like anything else. You got to earn it. You got to have a meritocracy mindset. And your organization also has to be moving up in a, in a positive way as well. But uh, I met Dave Stevens, who was CEO of the NBA in 2012 at the Ellie May conference in Vegas. And that was really a turning point. Uh, He asked me, hey, why don't you join a committee? I met with Pete Mills, who's still the um, senior vice president there. And I first jumped on a CFPB, um, I don't know, committee. From there in 2013, uh, I was fortunate enough to be accepted into their future leaders program, which is phenomenal. Um, 2014, that was 13, 2014, I got my CMB, my certified mortgage banker, which is essentially like an MBA, basically, of really knowing mortgages backwards to forwards. I just always had a passion for this industry. I think it's phenomenal what we do for consumers. I mean, it's, I don't think people realize how fortunate we are in this industry and any, any factor of it in real estate, you know, housing that you cover, anything of that nature. I think people don't realize 
that when you talk about the residential and the commercial side, we literally touch every American one way or another, our industry does. And that's very rewarding because outside of healthcare, where in some cases you don't see the best side, we get to see the best side usually at all times. So after that, um, that was 2014, 2015, I became a panelist, a judge essentially for the Future Leaders Program. That was one way I paid it forward. Um, 2016, I got involved in the IMB Executive Council, and then that's how I was asked to join uh, the NBA board in 17, as well as becoming a vice chair for MORPAC, which is the mortgage action, um, the political action committee uh, to raise funds where they really generate. And there's a lot of cool stories from after that, where I became MORPAC chairman, IMB executive chairman, um, executive council chair, uh, chairman. And it's been a fun journey. You know, I, I also got involved in NARAP that really opened up doors there. It's just been a very great evolution of leadership because I've also been fortunate to not only get to meet a lot of the industry titans, but to even learn from them. They've been very kind and just given me that pay it forward attitude. And that's why I have the same attitude. It's an attitude I've always carried just from my family's history. However, you pay it forward because what you're really doing is paying respect to those that gave it to you so that the next generation does it for the next up and comers. So it's really... They paved a road. You need to leave it better. So with the with the decade of involvement with the the NBA, and you, you've seen a few different CEOs and, and industry leaders inside of the organization, how have you seen the NBA change over the last ten years in terms of uh, focus or priorities, or or has it changed much? I mean, look, we were all Freddy Krueger after the crash, and that's always what drives me—that fear because of what we do to never be viewed that way. Cause I'm not going to sit here and say that there weren't bad actors, but as an industry, I, I still think we do a lot for our fellow Americans. So uh, for the consumer and for the industry, that's always driven me. But, you know, Dave really, you know, I want to say him and the executives there at the NBA saved their ability and really they've gotten really good at advocacy and really generated a slew of results. I mean, when, the former FHFA director tried to put that, we'll call it tax on refinances in the boom. Mm -hmm. They got to push back for another 90 days because of how bad that affected pipelines and would have affected millions. You know, when the Fed was doing what they were doing in 2020, and look, I was more PAC chairman there. So I was privy to a lot of conversations and know-how that it's wild to see because the industry will never know, really the few people that were really at the table and the impact that they made, but they did a phenomenal job because the margin calls were out of control and we're going to bankrupt people. And I got to give them credit because they basically said, you're going to end housing if you keep doing what you're doing. And more importantly, I got to give grace to the fed and to the treasury for being that open-minded too. It's not like, you know, I was involved in some of that. Believe it or not, there weren't really a whole lot of egos. There was actually people genuinely concerned for the betterment of the good. So I got to see all that. And then, you know, the transition from Dave to then Bob, it's still been about advocacy, getting results, making sure the consumer in the industry is going well and really cleaning up some of the things. Uh, Cause I think Dodd-Frank addressed a lot of great things that needed to be addressed for the industry, but like anything else, there's some cleaning up you have to do afterwards. Cause it's the unintended consequences that happened during that time. So 
I think they've really pumped education, which I think is very needed for people to really know the industry and advocacy. I think that's been the two biggest drivers and a network and just to to your point, a genuine curiosity to learn and to bring people together to learn um, has probably been the biggest driving forces that I've seen. So help us kind of like un- understand what board of directors involvement looks like and how like frequency of meetings, prioritization of topics, like as you, as you meet with your fellow board members, how do you come into each meeting with a, with an aligned charge and, and leave with, with action? So it's four meetings a year. So it's nothing, it's, it's quarterly. It's nothing crazy. I mean, the biggest thing is they, I think the coolest thing is that they make you hold yourself to an ethical standard that you have to sign off on a code of conduct. I think that's important. And ahead of time, you get a lot of the material, what's going on, what's going on in the industry. And you just, it's really, it's like anything else. It's really the robust relationships that you build in that room and you get to build it on both sides. You know, I really thoroughly enjoyed learning about the multifamily and commercial side that I truly had no clue, zero clue about. And really getting to know that, and and that was the benefit that the, the privileges of what I would say when I was more PAC chairman. You know, one chairman was residential, and then the next one because it's a it's a two term happened to be from the commercial side. So I learned a lot from him, uh, Brian Stoffers. Not everybody gets that. Sometimes they get one or the both um, because it's two residential than one commercial. How the MBA builds their ladder system, but the commitment. It's always about if you need anything like, hey, I'm seeing this. What are you seeing out there in an email group? And it, it's really just the relationships you build. You know, that's I've been privileged, and I say that, to actually get to know a lot of the titans and the people that make these decisions. So sometimes when you hear things about certain people out there, I can actually validate that they're not as accurate as they seem, only because I actually know these folks. I've been to the conferences with them. One board meeting is completely not during a conference. It's completely, we go somewhere and we're all together. Gives me a lot of perspective, a lot. Gives me a huge advantage and just to really learn. Yeah. So um, I, I think uh, by by nature, you're surrounded by other mortgage banking executives on the, on the board. And I think that the best leaders in this industry come into every day with an abundance mentality. But how do you navigate working side by side with some of your direct competitors that, uh, that, you know, you have to go face to face with as a, in your business every, every day, week or or month, but then you come together and work toward a common good in your MBA involvement. That is a great question. Um, because my mindset is I don't believe in competitors. Uh, I believe in the competition. I believe they make you healthy. But I believe the only competitor in this world is the eyeballs in the mirror because that's the only thing that's going to do or not do what you want to do. So I view their successes as a huge positive because that shows it's possible and you can learn from them and you just got to be graceful. Some people don't have that mindset um, and that's okay. That's not on that's not on me. That's on them. So that's why I have no problem because as I jokingly said, I, I – I jokingly laugh at times when they say, oh, trade secrets. I never knew closing alone was a trade secret. <laughs> so it's really about execution and leadership. And that's what people don't want to admit 
and they want it to be smoke and mirrors and magic and shenanigans. And I'm not going to sit here and say that some of that doesn't exist. Trust me, I'm very candorous. However, it doesn't bother me. What I'm going to accomplish is going to be if I motivate the people or I hire the right people or I empower the right people or if I level up enough. So that's kind of my mindset on it. That's why I don't, in a weird way, like, and you see that in the industry, oh, this person's this. I I, I never get caught up in that because A, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what prices they've paid. And then B, it's still good for the consumer in the industry. And in the end, that's more important for this country than your own ego. I mean, that's how I, I truly hang it up myself. Through your through your board involvement and you know, having to be or getting to be elbow to elbow with other leaders that you compete with and learn from. Have you had any kind of personal leadership lessons or uh, just experiences that have shaped the way you lead your organization at EPM? Yeah, no, no, no. I've been very fortunate on that one. I mean, I've gotten some phenomenal advice. Um, You know, Peter Norton being one of them, you know, with, He's like, Eddie, dude, I, I don't think some of these models are good for culture. You need to really lean into that. And look, this is a gentleman that's had a lot of success multiple times. So it's not like it's a one and done or one wrong run. You know, freedom, getting to know Stan Middleman very well. He's been very kind to me. I mean, there's been a slew. Uh, Bill Emerson at Rocket. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of getting to know almost every CEO one way or another. And I just... It's funny because a few people told me like, Eddie, you know, this person has a problem with this one. You really don't. I said, because I don't really view them as competitors. I'm sorry. This isn't a BS facade. This is, I'm the one that's got to get up at four something in the morning to go work out to make sure my health is good. I'm the one that's got to make sure to recruit and stay on it. I'm the one that's got to level up. I'm the one that's got to read books. So with a lot of that self-responsibility, I don't know their pain. You don't know their struggle. So I, I view that very empathetically with a lot of awareness, but yeah, no, I've been gifted. Dave Stevens has provided a lot, Bill Kilmer, Pete Mills, Marsha Davies, just a lot of different perspectives. And, and not just there, you know, at NAREP as well with Gary Acosta, Armando Tam. I mean, even uh, the relationship you and I have built, relationships I've built with AIM. Like I just don't, I have a very holistic view because it's all about the consumer to me. So what's good for our fellow Americans? That that's that's great. So let's let's dive deeper into 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 Morpac and uh, kind of start with sure. uh, yeah. what what is Morpac? Who's involved? I mean, kind of go from there. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, Morpac is the pack for the industry. Uh, they're the only uh, pack that represents real estate finance in all fashions: residential, commercial, multifamily. And Morpac stands for the Mortgage Political Action. Um, committee. And essentially, they only deal with Congress. So it's just senators and the House, because that's who really impacts housing in our industry the most. You know, we're not, you know, real estate agents, builders, they've got to deal with states, municipalities. I mean, they've got multiple levels. The advantage that we have is we just got to deal with Congress. And yeah, that has benefits, but that's what's allowed this industry to thrive, because even though that PAC which now is a top 10 pack. It doesn't even have some of the funds that others have had, but it's had massive impact because the fortunate thing we have as an industry is we are one of the very few bipartisan industries. So we actually get the best of everybody. 
And we actually get to see real colors. So that provided me even, you know, you want to talk about another one. You know, even politically, I got to see what people really were about and everything of that nature. So it's a two-year term. More PAC exists. You have vice chairs. You have steering committees. You have members. And you fundraise. And you then work with that fundraising. And it's spread pretty evenly between Republicans and Democrats, because like I said, as our industry is very uh, bipartisan. How, so that the bipartisanship is, is awesome. And I definitely see that in the, the folks that we know and serve across the housing industry. So how do you, how are the initiatives and priorities set for MORPAC? And like, what is the, what is like the industry feedback or uh, MBA board of directors feedback loop on look like on really setting the key priorities where Morpac believes they can make a difference in the areas that are most important to make a difference on? They look at the key issues. They look at the laws that need to get passed or amended or adjusted. They look at things that can be done. Okay. Does this have to be by Congress or can this just be a rule change? You know, they really, you know, they embraced uh, the CFPB on areas where they want to enhance certain things to provide a certain levels of protection. Even without MORPAC, you know, that's how years ago, I mean, we're talking about like, God, was this 2016, 2015, where uh, Fannie Mae and all that started sunsetting. If, if a loan's been on the books for three years, you know, some of your responsibility and your reps and warrants go down, you know, more PAC definitely stepped in when it's the false claims act that was going on. That was really affecting, uh, lenders. And they thought that that was really causing adverse impact to the industry. And that's all because of the great relationships. And it's not just, you know, I know people sometimes try to play it up like, Oh, this is bribery. It's not because trust me from what we contribute, it's not as much as you think, even though it does raise a decent amount, but when you spread it amongst senators, committees, things of that nature, um, and people that support housing, it's not as much as you think it's just access because I say this all the time. You know, if you want to get in the best club when you're younger, you got to pay a cover. It's still about what you do in there and you got to do the right thing. Yep. You know, these people aren't going to risk their careers and do something that is shorthanded, um, especially housing. It's just, it affects everybody. So it's, it's, it's a very, that alone is what keeps a lot of things in a positive check. That's why you haven't seen breakout scandals and stuff like that outside of 2008 crash, just because a lot of people were involved there. And that wasn't just our industry. It was so other you- industries. It just, rating agencies. It just, it's, it's a part of history that we have to understand what led to it. And I don't see that happening again, just because there's a lot more awareness. So you, you were chairman of MORPAC during some important times in the housing industry. It feels like we go through important times pretty often recently, but uh, in 2018 and 2019, where, where IMBs were, were fighting through a margin compression period, 2020, as we entered COVID and saw interest rates decline and a, a rapid increase in volume, how did the industry dynamics or cycles that we were currently in, in impact people's involvement or priorities inside of MORPAC or, or even impact the attention that you're able to get from Congress as um, everybody's sights were set on housing in, uh, in Q2 of 2020 as, um, as a lot of uncertainty came to the forefront on people's ability to pay. 
Um, you know, they were definitely at the table. Like I said, there was a lot of, I don't want to say the word clandestine, but there was a lot of meetings that people never know. It's like anything that, and why I tell people they got to practice gratitude and have it is you have no idea some of the heavy lifting that was done. I do because I was there. There's a difference, but it's also something from an honor code you, you, you can't put out there and you can't brag about and you can't just, hey, look at me because then you didn't do it for the right reasons. You really did it for self-promotion. But yeah, no, I mean, 19 and 20, it was interesting. Everybody forgets about the nuclear winter of 2019 where volumes had dried up. But I mean, they're involved. I mean, from the Treasury to the Fed. I mean, look, Bob was at the White House just three weeks ago. I mean, there's a lot of deep because they get results and they get results for consumers in a good way, in an honest way. So they definitely deliver on that premise. So look, you know, Republicans and Democrats are going to be very positive because it's not really agenda based. It's really consumer based. So it's really about what's going to affect the consumers and really drives that consumer centric mindset. But yeah, I mean, the margin calls were going to affect the consumers because if a lot of people were going out of business or better yet, if the capital markets had to freeze up because people couldn't make that, that was going to cause some serious challenges and allow access to credit to dry up. So that's always what they're really fighting for is, is access. And look, now, you know, we're trying to get, you know, wealth creation, especially growing it in different minority groups. And housing's the number one driver of that. And they're definitely on the forefront of, of pushing that forward and just bringing that level of awareness to the originators. Cause I think it's the originators. And I always say this, that are going to make the biggest impact because Man, they're can you, at the street level. Can you think about like how many refis would not have gotten done and how many consumers would still be paying a, a mortgage rate that was out of market from 2020 and 2021 yeah. interest rates. If we use margin calls got in the way of lenders being able to continue their activity. I think, you know, I think a lot of like shade or, or like negative context gets passed to the lenders that did a lot of refi volume. Cause it's supposed to be, you know, purchase, purchase, purchase. That's like the long-term <laughs> mentality. But the reality is if the lenders that are strong in refi didn't step up over the last two years and, you know, in turn, like put up a lot yeah. of volume and make a lot of money. There's a lot of homeowners who would be paying significantly higher interest rates, which puts a whole nother pressure on, on the, the whole economic landscape. Or even look, I mean, big wins was the refinance hit and then how it was removed when there was a new FHFA director put in play. Those are big yeah. wins that I think sometimes aren't taken into consideration. And look, the great thing also is, you know, with Morpac, that's that's the fundraising arm, but everybody in this industry can join MA, which is the Mortgage um, Action Alliance, because it's completely free. And you can take actions even at the local level, because sometimes at the local level, there are some things and they put out the actions that are very, very positive. That's one of the things that helped because when that 50 basis point hit came, some of the people on the political side that it really impacted their own consumers. I mean, they got 90,000 emails from that take action. Yeah, that's wild. That's going to get noticed. And everybody can do that because it doesn't matter what your thought process is, you know, Uh, what associations you're involved in. At the end of the day, it still has huge impacts. Um, Just those take actions because they even do it for you and it's grassroots. You send it there and then you just send your action to who you're going to be affected. But trust me, the 
former FHFA director did not go without kicking and screaming, but I mean, that just wasn't good for consumers, you know? Oh, in the middle of this pipeline, all of a sudden you're getting bumped. It's going to hurt companies, going to hurt this. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins. I'm going to take a quick break from the episode to talk about an emerging risk in the current market, fraud and quality control. Our team at HousingWire recently reported on a CoreLogic mortgage fraud report, which said that the risk of income and property fraud rose 27% and 23% respectively, just in the second quarter of 2022. Our enterprise loan quality partner of the housing news podcast, QC Ally, shared some expertise with me on how lenders can uncover opportunity through loan quality control. QC Ally shares that ensuring trust in lending opens the doors for more creativity, such as expansion of the credit box and additional products, which ultimately increases access to homeownership. That can help increase the number of potential borrowers for lenders and more origination volume, something we all want. QC and risk management doesn't have to be a cost center. It can actually unlock revenue. If you want to learn more about our partners at QC Ally, please reach out to Michael Kelleher at michael.kelleher at qcally.com or shoot Michael, Nicole Booth, or Kristen Broadley a note on LinkedIn. They'd all love to speak with you. Now, back to our episode. Yeah, so the you, you talked a little bit about other organizations that are involved in advocacy. We talk, we'll talk about AIM in a second, but the National Association of Realtors has a uh, has a rep for being like probably one of the, the the biggest and most impactful advocates out there in in DC. Um, do you do you see where their their causes or initiatives where Morpac and NAR were aligned, or is it kind of like operating separate lanes? Um, even though there's this shared focus on consumer and homeownership. Ironically, believe it or not, um, you know the NBA's reputation for getting good results for the industry. A lot of those trade associations usually join on them in the joint letters, including NAR. Yep. And they really lead the charge because I'll go out and say it. That's who usually generates the most results. So even though other ones are bigger, to your point, they kind of say, hey, you're the one that's going to punch it in. So let's join in on there. So, uh, And that's just been built by very honest and good conversations and, and grassroots that's been being built for 12 years. And I hate to say this like anything else, and, and I don't mean to say hate to say it. They've delivered results for consumers, for the industry, for advocates. They've given people access to education along all levels. You know, they've definitely tackled some of the social concerns that are out there. You know, they've stayed on the forefront. So I understand why other organizations, even though may be big, you know, jokingly, like they say in sports, they're kind of the ringer. Yeah. Hey, well, that's a, not a bad thing for the mortgage industry. So, so jumping No, forward, I mean, it's good. It's good. It's good. So jumping forward to AIM, the Association of Independent Mortgage Experts, who I, I would say is a newer entrant in kind of the lobbying and, and advocacy efforts. But you see Katie Sweeney and her team um, spending an increasing amount of time in D.C. Are, 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 I, and I, the, this is, we didn't set up the conversation to talk about AIM, but like, are, do you have any viewpoints on, on how they're progressing into the, the advocacy world and how they may align or not align with, with more PAC initiatives? Well, I know they've started doing more work with Bill Kilmer and his group at the NBA and definitely aligning and doing some of the things there. And they're definitely, you know, growing up because at the end, yeah. 
and and then and this is why I always say I don't get caught up in the whole competitor thing because you know independent mortgage brokers almost ninety six percent of their loans are funded by independent mortgage bankers so everybody's interests are aligned and I just think they need to collaborate to unify more and I think as a unified front and we're definitely I think moving in that right direction and and Katie and the team are definitely doing a great job there is generally it's leading to a lot of great benefits because. You know, most of the members that they have are self-employed and they're not just members. So that's all part of entrepreneurial. That's all part of capitalism. That's all part of what works well. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there and you can never have enough advocacy. Let's 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 be honest here, especially something that well, people don't realize when you think about, I mean, just the finance side. So we're talking about real estate finance, even in what is considered a tougher market. So we're not talking about overall real estate. We're not talking about the construction. We're not talking about the whole sector because the sector is even way bigger. But the finance side is probably still going to move three to three and a half trillion dollars next year. The residential side is going to move two trillion. That's impact, man. That's huge. Yeah, it's it's funny when you kind of contextualize it. Like 2022, at least the second, especially the second half in 2023, not not forecasted to be great periods, but we're still going to do 2 trillion in residential volume. And I think that equates to about 5 million units. That is opportunity out there for housing professionals who focus in the right areas. It doesn't, um, it's not the gravy train uh, of last year, but it is the, uh, the opportunity is still there. But the opportunity, you're also going to see people become a lot more efficient. You'll see yep. people who really evolve and refine their business models. And then that's going to lead to the next great run. Because this industry also, it did $4 trillion back-to-back years. To run healthy, it just doesn't need as many people. you know, And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that because the great part is, is a lot of the people that are leaving are either going to another sector or a lot are retiring because they've had – you know a long run and a hell of a run. Yep. And they're ready to go to that next, you know, stage of their life. And and why blame them? I mean, you got to leave it to the younger generation at some point. I mean, and that's just, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing. And, and to go back with what you were saying about aim and, and working together, I do believe that we see a little bit of a morphine, more of how the industry was when I started. And when I started 20 years ago, you know, you hear these stats. So if I'm off by a percentage, it's not because I'm making them up. But roughly two out of three loans either came from the wholesale or non-Dell space. And I think that it starts to go back there uh, for a various of reasons. But I think you start to see that evolve and keep evolving and keep. And, and I still believe, you know, people say wholesale, retail, you're still an originator. You're still dealing with B2C, which is business to consumer. It's just, are you dealing with it as a W-2 employee or as a 1099, essentially your own business? You're still B2C. You're still an originator. Uh, The difference is more about the mindset and what you feel like is going to be best for you. That's what I always tell people. Like, it's really about you. Like, since I have both divisions, if you want somebody, if you want to hand in your file, walk away, and you want to just build a bigger pie, Retail is probably going to be the one for you. You'll you'll make less per loan, but overall. Um, but then, if you want to function and you want to be your own entrepreneur and you want to be have all this flexibility, that's up to you too. Like I always tell people, like you just got to know you and what you want to be. So, 
I think you see more of that. And I think you see a lot of morphing and changing because I think it's required for the consumer. I just do. I think the new world order. You launched Equity Prime in like, I guess you arguably the the worst time or the the best time to, to launch a mortgage business, 2008. Uh, so how has how your business morphed over the last that's last 14 years? And um, and I, I'm also curious on your perspective on the, the worst time or the best time, because uh, I, I have my views on when great businesses are launched, but interested in yours. It's a great thing I was 31 in 2008. <laughs> well, you're not still 31? No, <laughs> not even close. Um, you know, naiveness is powerful, but then resilience and ingenuity is powerful too. Because once you're in it, it's not as easy as you thought it would be, but you're going to keep going. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill had one of the best lines. If you're going through hell, you might as well keep going. One of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. A lot. And a lot of grace and opportunity. So, I mean, how we've morphed is back then I had like 21 employees because I went from a broker to becoming a mortgage banker. Uh, and the reason was I always wanted to go back to serve the, the wholesale community and the non-Dell community and still have retail. I wanted to do both. Um, I felt like in time, our mindset was a little bit different in a, in a positive way. That's good for the industry because I'm always one to say, hey, who's to say this is better or that's better? Uh, at the end of the day, it's still about the consumer. And Consumers are going to make different decisions, um, different, you know, some people like to go to Walmart. Some people like to go to Target. It's really up to their own preference and what's around them too. access. So, you know, we've morphed since then um, to grow and, and, and really grow more even in today's day and age, you know, more wholesale um, than retail. But I think they both have their opportunities and it's really about the mindset and the culture that you create in the organization. And I think the biggest morphing was, you know, culturally, which culture is the mindset of an organization of really growing it to be more about empowerment, bringing people to the table, collaboration to unify. And it's okay if people have differences, you can agree to disagree. That's completely okay. I know that that's not believed a lot of times out there and to keep moving down the line and being very honest. Um, cause at times people are going to say things or do things against you that aren't accurate, but it's really about your own integrity and how you do it. And, and that's how we've morphed is, is just with a lot of radical transparency. I have no problem answering any question. There's nothing that somebody can ask me that I'm, outside of it being something that legally I can't do, you know, like quote certain things online or, you know, you're not following RESPA and things of that nature that I wouldn't do because I, I think that's the key to building trust is you got to not only take action, but you got to be very honest and graceful with it. And that's how we've grown. I think that's how we're going to continue to grow. So bringing it back to industry involvement and industry leadership. And uh, you joked that, thank God you were 31 when you, when you launched in 2008, was there a point in your entrepreneurial journey where you said like, all right, I've got the the time, the resources, the knowledge to to get involved at a different level. Um, what was kind of your inflection point that said like uh, that you, you got out of the operational grind or like the entrepreneurial grind where everything needs to be focused on like the problem ahead of you to actually give some of your time and resources to the industry? I mean, that's still a working battle. 
I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I haven't been an originator. But if you're going to go further, you know, there's there's a great saying that says, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go with others. And that's kind of been the mindset that I've adapted. And I'm genuinely, I genuinely like people just in general. I'm an extrovert. And I've kind of enjoyed learning about people and just, I'll always be a learner. That's one of my, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of the Clifton Strengths test. That's one of the things I've told people because you don't get anywhere by focusing on your weaknesses. You just triple down on your strengths because then your weaknesses just become a blind spot. Or if you still have that blind spot, you just hire somebody for it. It's just that simple. And learner was my number three strength. I've always just had a genuine curiosity around it. It's just kind of me. It's like playing sports. It's fun. And I think that's because when I did play sports, it was all about learning and getting a little bit better every day. So it's kind of that mindset. Um, So it's just been a journey, but there was never an inflection point. (laughs) Like it was just, all right, I want to get involved. I want to learn. I learned from others. Like if you go to these conferences, this is how you build relationships And, you know, now at an older age, I didn't understand it then, but I really understand it now in the virtual world because it's essentially how you build oxytocin and build relationships with people because that's really what it's about. And you can't do that. You can do it great on video today, but back then you couldn't. It had to be face-to-face. So it kind of gets the best of both worlds now. You can really see more people video than ever. And when you do go, you can see people face-to-face. So you don't have to go face-to-face as much, but you definitely have to be high on video. But I got to meet so many great people that were kind of coming up because that after crash, people that survived was kind of the changing of the guard then. And we're going through a changing of the guard again right now because it's about every 14 to 16 years you see the 30s and 40s and early 50s rise up to become the new leaders and then the other people retire. And that's just just like in sports. You just see that in these cycles. Mm-hmm. And the great part is I got to meet a lot of the people along the way there. Yeah, that's cool. So I, I think the we, we talk about like the inflect or the the 14 to 16 year like kind of uh change in the guard. Our industry also has like some cycles that that put us all in battlefield mode. Do you think like the battlefield mode that that a lot of us are in right now? prevents the next generation of leaders from giving their time to organizations like NAREP or MBA? Or or are you seeing the next generation step up right now and actually be able to get out of their own heads and their own battles to uh, to get involved? <laughs> That's a good question. Wow. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely seeing more people that have been around but not involved step in. Yeah. So I've seen definitely the younger generation start stepping in to, you know, MBA, AIM, NAREP, NARAB, all these associations. Um, because I think the the difference about this battlefield today is relationships matter again. And people are starting to realize that, that the transactional based run from so much of the QE that was being bought, that was always driving down interest rates. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that consumer direct doesn't have an impact, but I don't think it's going to be the swings that it used to be like, okay, we need to focus on purchase. And then, oh my God, rates drop huge. We just need to have a call center. Um, not going to say that they don't aren't needed because consumer direct is, is a legit business. 
I just don't know if it's going to have the same impact that it used to and relationships really do matter. And I do see more and more people understanding that. Um, and it makes sense. Cause like I said, it, when you get to know people face to face, you get to understand how similar you are, even if you have differences and you get to work with them more than just a transaction. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we get to, work with like in the NBA, you get to obviously get a lot of interaction with peer lenders. But as we look at the future of lending and look at the battlefield room right now, there's a big focus on efficiency. And uh, I, I think that we can look to some of the technology partners and innovators that are, that are building artificial intelligence and other tech enabled solutions to make the housing industry more impactful. What, what seats do you see those folks having at the table or what, what type of involvement are you seeing from the folks that are innovating from a product perspective, but might not be part of a leadership team in a mortgage bank or other lending institution? I mean, obviously this industry's tech needs to evolve. That's that, that's just a fact. Um, I also think the mindsets of all the leaders needs to evolve too. Because I think at some point in time, nobody wants to talk about it, but there are a lot of functions that can be outsourced. They just really can be because at the end, you got to drive down costs because consumers have a lot of access to information today. And that doesn't mean that, you know, people always are fearful like jobs are going to get eliminated. Look, there's more people driving people around today with Uber than when it was just taxi cabs. So just something will step up, you know, have faith, you know, trust me, humans are very, especially humans that have the fortunate to be free. Like we do in this country, their ingenuity and the investments that people give them and kind of gives a little bit of a leg up. You know, I can't say that for the rest of the world, but I can definitely say that for America and those that are involved in it. So, I mean, tech's got to improve. Some laws need to change too, you know, you know, they're still battling Ron and things like that. And look, the consumer, I get it. There's still a hesitation of, oh my God, what happens in 2008? But it's, you know, it's, it's why some of the laws are changing now that you don't have to be within 60 miles of an office. You can plug into a system. And I always say this, you could be in Boise, Idaho, dealing with somebody in Maryland, New Jersey, because everybody's remote now, like. This, this industry is so hybrid. I mean, you may have one centralized process, but I, I promise you the processors, the underwriters, the ops team is spread throughout the whole country. So I think the big thing that needs to be really honed in on is the true KPIs because it's going to be very hard. You know, I, I, I did a podcast with uh, Christy Furco, who is president at Wells. And she said, look, I can lead 25,000 people because of when I focus with my executives, it's the KPIs and we need to see why this is going in the red and we got to embrace that conflict and all that. If not, you're not going to be able to lead that many people. So I think tech and more importantly, KPIs truly needs to advance itself. And the biggest advancement technologically has got to be within the leader's mindset that we need to do this. This is not micromanagement. You know, micromanagement's built off lack of trust. So if you trust people and then you're holding them to a standard, that just means you're a good coach and a good leader because you don't want mediocrity to persist. Because what I think some people don't understand is the best way to destroy great employees is by leaving those that don't deliver results around, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, technology definitely has got to drive down cost. 
I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few controversial subjects I can tack on besides that. But yeah, that's technology's got to drive down the cost um, because that's about the one thing that can. Maybe that's a case for for more tech leader involvement in the NBA and in different committees. So uh, the the focus of what IMB leaders is focusing on gets across the table to the tech leaders. They're working in the right direction and and, and vice versa. Uh, this might be a case for uh, a seat at the table for some of the tech leaders that are are working towards solutions. Well, I know on the board, uh, Nima, the CEO of Blend is on the board. So there's definitely some tech stuff that's around there and there's definitely tech involvement because the board does allow, um, you don't have to be a mortgage banker. You can be a a member company and be on there too. Um, if they think the leadership will be good for the industry. So, and I know that other organizations, you know, aim and and NAREP and all that does that as well. So I think it's just, to your point, you basically highlighted it. We just need more and more collaboration. Yeah. I, I think the the little anecdote you shared from Christy about um, focusing on KPIs and having the leadership f- team focus on KPIs is the only way to lead large organizations. And, uh, you know, part of that, I hear that and I, I think that's so obvious. Um, but like maybe there are, uh, I mean, I think the mortgage industry does have a lot of leaders in it that are mortgage people, not necessarily business people by training. And, and Christy is a, an MBA who worked at Pepsi before she began her esteemed career in, in the mortgage yeah. world and, and brings a, uh, you know, you brings a pretty diverse background to, to housing. That isn't like I started as an originator at 18 and, and grew up and I, maybe there are, we talked about training and learning, and, uh, and you know, you can, you learn on, on the ground, but like, maybe there is more business training, like business fundamentals that like we in the housing industry and the MBA can bring to oh, yeah. the leaders that, uh, you know, they, they know the ins and outs of origination and capital markets and servicing, but, uh, there's business principles that can be learned from other sectors and other, uh, industries that have some of the same cyclical components that we have in housing, but have figured out more efficient ways to manage through those. Cause I, the uh, the elastic nature of the housing industry is still one that confounds me on uh you know how how you know, how good or bad we are at like scaling up and scaling down in different marketing and market environments. <laughs> yeah, she also brought a great perspective because she came from an HR background. Yep, and she talked about how she understood culture and leading people and showing that you care. You know, that's uh, to your point. She had been at Pepsi for eight years and then Fannie Mae, then Flagstar, and now Wells. And that's a wealth of understanding and a wealth. And and even her own life story where, you know, she grew up in South Central LA and then her dad uh, was the first uh, black coach of an NCAA uh, team. And he was at the University of Arizona track coach and she got to go there and then learn a whole different culture and then learn everything back and forth to really give her a huge perspective on how she can touch all sides. I mean, I think that was, she always said that. Plus she has a cool thing I want to share with you that she shared with me. This is great. Every leader should do this. I'm starting to, I'm starting to do it. I call it KR cause I call it the Christie rule. And yes, she spells Christie with a K. Some people always look at me. She literally on every executive on when they're talking about, Hey, here are the challenges. What are the solutions? She literally will pick and she rotates it a different devil's advocate. 
just to bring a different perspective, but she changes it instead of the person who's like, I'm always going to be that person. She designates different people. And I thought that was powerful. So I jokingly told my executives, I'm just calling it KR, the Christie rule, uh, to pay honor to her. Because I thought that was like, I'm like, wow, that's groundbreaking. Just like, uh, you know, I learned recently the power of video texting, like how much that means to people. I mean, you, and once again, it goes back to what you were saying, Clayton. It's a form of face-to-face. Our conversation now right now is face-to-face. I can see your mannerisms. You can see mine. We can see our backgrounds. And maybe it's not if you were like sitting right here in my office or I was sitting in yours. However, it still connects more than, I mean, do you remember conference calls? Those were horrible. (laughs) Those were horrible, man. Oh my God. For some reason, like lawyers and bankers still can't get off them. I feel like I'm every, like once a month or so I'm on with a lawyer and I got to put in like a 12 digit code to get into a conference call. And I'm like, just kill me now. (laughs) Yeah. Those are, those are horrible. Yeah. Horrible. So that, the KR rule is interesting. I had a, a friend telling me about, uh, I think it's a similar concept and I, I, I haven't read a lot about this, but I think they call it the 10th man rule, which is a, an Israeli military concept where there's always somebody in every meeting whose job is to be the devil's advocate and, and pick holes and assumptions and plans. And, uh, and it's a, it's a function on the team. And I think that's a, um, I'm going to like on, on your reminder of the KR rule, the, the Christie rule, I'm going to read up more on this as really military concept because it sounds like that's like a a leadership principle that's been developed by a lot of great organizations and leaders over time. And it's really just something in action. I mean, it can help you run in your organization. I mean, that's just, I thought that was groundbreaking. And what's funny is most groundbreaking ideas, to your point, you know, I think Marcus Aurelius, when he wrote Meditations 1800 years ago, was right when he said it's still humanity. Nothing's really changed. It's just doing it. And then to your point, kind of understanding it, why analogies are so powerful, because they they give you a perspective like, oh, I get it now. I see what you really mean. Um, but yeah, I'm not sh- shocked that, you know, the Israelis run a heck of a military. So I'm not surprised by any of that. And I'm not surprised that this type of behavior, especially like I said, with Christie's background of humanity, because that's what human resources really is. It's really culture. It's really people operations. It's really transformed to be about how do you get the most leveraged engagement and for people to not be nihilist, to have a purpose and mission, maybe not with their own life because that's up to them, but at least as an organization to move things the right way forward. So Eddie, let's get to the the call to action here. So we think about the the next generation and uh, whether we're talking about a branch manager or a production leader, somebody with executive ambition that wants to get involved in the industry, where, where do they begin? How, how can they think about getting more involved in local state organizations, the NBA, AIM? Like where, where would you suggest people get started? Well, there are local chapters. You know, NAREP has local chapters. There are state chapters for the NBA, even though there's a little bit of difference between national and state. They, like they're together, but they, I don't know how to really explain it. They're a little bit quasi different, but it is a stepping stone. You know, there's local real estate boards that more than you can join in. And I know that there's, I'm not sure if AIM has started local chapters, but I know that they're doing certain things. So that may be a possibility. I know that they're a little bit more virtual. They're more new age, so they can leverage the whole country really fast. Um, so I, I just say that just do it. <laughs> just figure it out. Get involved. There's a lot of great organizations. You know, like we said, AIM, NAR, 
NARAP, NARAB, MBA. There's just a whole slew of ways because trust me, especially, I mean, the, the, the tough part's going to be that people probably got to understand that you got to start at one of the smaller positions and then work your way. It's not going to be instant. That's why it was a great question when you're like, oh, you know, your MBA 2017. I was like, no, man, I was involved <laughs> five years before that even got there. So it, it's just one of those that um, it's a process. But if you're in it for even the medium or long term, anything good in life takes a process and a time. You got to pay your dues because more importantly, if you're doing it just for yourself, then, yeah, you want to jump it. But the problem is you're not going to provide value without that experience that you gain along the way. So there's just the call to action is there's a slew of places they can get part of the mortgage action Alliance, which will it's free will also drive local issues that you hit. And you can start talking about that too. You know, there's been things in Maryland, there was things in California that they bring it up. And then that, that does it. There was something in Georgia here in Atlanta where I'm at that I was able to do a call to action to. So, I mean, there's just a slew of ways. <laughs> there's no shortage, trust me. And they're always looking for new people. Yep. That's that's the other thing is, especially to your point, it's volunteer time. So if you volunteer your time, the only true commodity in this world, that means you actually care a lot. Plenty of those because there's plenty of people that unfortunately don't care or don't understand or don't know what's going on. And they're just like, well, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But no, that's true. One person can't make a huge difference. Don't ever believe that it can't yeah. and this might not feel like a, a a good time to get involved as people are focused on their their business and in battlefield mode in some in some capacity but the the point you made about having a seat at the table during import while important decisions were being made in times of crisis i think is a good reminder why why now is a great time to to get involved with organizations and we are going through a period of change in this industry and you know having a uh, being a fly on the wall for some of those decisions and conversations is is better than not being involved at all. So I think that's a, a great prompt, Eddie. And now's no, it's actually easier now. Now's the best time to do it, believe it or not. Because it's, even though, like I said, when I was very naive in 08, this is the time to do it because more than ever now, in the tougher times, people yearn leadership. They learn clarity. You know, nobody minds change as much as that saying needs to be unlearned. They mind lack of clarity. So it's up to you to be crystal overboard, crystal clear. And now more than ever, people are yearning for others more involvement because I do believe it's going to take an army because at the end of the day, when you're, you know, the responsibility of trillions on the industry's shoulders, trillions takes an army. It's not going to take a few. All right, Eddie, thank you for your time. I will let you get back to running your business and leading your army and helping the industry. Thank you for sharing your expertise and experience. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for the grace and the opportunity and to even reach out and think about me. So I greatly appreciate it, Clayton. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you. Thank you.